I'm a professor of pediatrics and neuroscience at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which is here in the Bronx in New York City. I work using neuroimaging techniques and electrophysiological techniques to investigate multisensory integration and attentional functions in both healthy young people and adults, but also in neurodevelopmental disorders with a specific focus on autism. I also serve as an associate editor for the European Journal of Neuroscience. My section is the Cognitive Neuroscience section. I've been doing that since about 2008. In this study, you tested the hypothesis that children with autism spectrum disorder may have altered cortical processing of visual information. What brought you to this hypothesis? One of the things that clinicians, researchers have noted in autism is that these children often have peculiar, slightly off-center fixations. And this has been interpreted over the years as a deficit related to social issues, that they don't look at you directly in the eyes, for example, because they're uncomfortable with that. And we had the thought that perhaps this could be something rather more basic. Another observation in autism is that quite often the children have fine motor skills issues. They can be a little awkward or clumsy. And so if one takes that simple observation, that perhaps there may be something wrong with simple sensory motor integration, uh, and applies it to the eye movement system, to the movement of the eyes around in the environment, it seems possible, at least, that young infants and children with autism may have just an imprecision in the eye movements that is not necessarily related to social avoidance, but may just simply be an imprecision in the eye movement system. And if one takes that notion and expands it out and, and imagines, well, if you had an imprecise eye movement system from birth, what would the consequences of that be across development? So that led us to think about how would the visual system develop uh, through experience if the eye movement system had a little less fidelity. Now, one of the very interesting things about how the visual system develops is that the early visual areas develop a very, very precise map for the middle of space, so space right out in front of you. But that map becomes much less precise as you move out into the periphery. So despite the fact that we perceive all of space, we think of it as a continuous surface, if you like, continuous environment, we're much less precise out here to the side uh, than we are in the center. And this is reflected in the amount of actual visual cortex that's dedicated to processing central space versus peripheral space. And this is really rather a dramatic effect such that if you take just the central one degree of space, so if you put your finger out in front of you and look at your thumb at full arm's length, your thumbnail is about one degree of space. And in the cortex, in the primary visual cortex, there are four square centimeters of cortex devoted to processing that single degree of space, that small little piece of space. If you take your arm and move it six to eight inches to the right or to the left, that same space has only one and a half square millimeters of cortical space devoted to it. So there's a massive and dramatic fall off in the amount of cortical space that's dedicated to processing those pieces of visual space. Now, this cortical magnification factor must develop across infancy and childhood, early childhood, as the child moves the eyes around and begins to experience space. And if you take the idea that there would be slight imprecisions in how the eyes are fixating as a function of a simple motor deficit. This leads to some pretty straightforward predictions about what that 
tuning of that cortical magnification factor would be. And that is that the tuning for central space would be a little less precise, and the tuning for more peripheral space would be a little accentuated. And so that was the basic hypothesis that we went into this study with. Could you tell us what method you used to test your hypothesis and what you found? We measure the brain's activity by putting electrodes at the scalp surface. So we put a lot of electrodes all over the scalp. And we asked a simple question. If we present stimulation in the middle of the screen, right at fovea, what will the response coming from visual cortex, which is back here in the, in the, in the occiput, what would the response there be like? We want to compare the response in children on the autism spectrum to the response in children who are developing normally or typically. What will the response be there? And then we ask the same question by presenting stimuli out six to eight inches from central fixation in the periphery. And we said, what's the response? How, if we compare the response in neurotypical children there to children on the autism spectrum, is there a difference? And the basic predictions of the study are as follows. We expected little to no difference in the center of space. And that's because there's such a large area of cortex devoted to representing that piece of space that a small change in the representation shouldn't really change the response that much. Remember, there's four square centimeters of cortex in there. However, once we move peripherally, we're down to one and a half millimeters squared of cortex representing that peripheral stimulus. And if there's been a broader tuning of visual cortex in autism, now we expect to see some differences out there. And the direction of those differences should be towards more representation. So the autism children on the spectrum, we expect it to show greater responsivity to information presented out in the periphery, six to eight inches out from central space. And that's precisely what we found. So when we present the stimuli in the middle and we recorded the visual response to our electrodes at the scalp surface, we found that the response in the children with autism was pretty much identical to the response we got from children who were typically developing. However, when we move that stimulus out those six or eight degrees into the periphery, well, let me add that, of course, then what happens is there's such a small piece of cortex relative to the center space that the response reduces greatly. But what we found there was that the children on the autism spectrum had a larger response than the children who are typically developing, significantly larger. So what are the implications of these findings? A major issue in autism research and in the clinics dealing with autism is the issue of diagnosis. When can we diagnose these children? How early can we diagnose these children? And one thing we know for sure is that diagnosing these children as early as possible has major implications for treatment and outcome. Now, the numbers are actually quite shocking in terms of our current abilities, at least our typical abilities to diagnose these children. So if you look in the literature today, what you'll find is that the average age of first diagnosis of autism here in the United States, and I believe it's much the same across most of Europe, is between four and five years of age. And it's actually more towards five years of age than it is four years of age, uh, four years and 10 months. Now that's tragically late in my opinion, and I think most clinicians would certainly agree with that. And what we'd like to be able to do is really move the goalposts here. Can we move back diagnosis to much earlier in development? Again, we know that the earlier we diagnose, the sooner we can intervene. And although we don't know the underlying etiology of a lot of the autism spectrum disorders, we do know that behavioral interventions, simple speech pathology interventions, so on, 
can be extremely effective with these children. So what we'd like to be able to do is diagnose these children much earlier. And to do that, we really need good, solid biological markers that would allow us to pick up these children much earlier. And so this is one possibility with the results that we've just found. The basic thesis here is that this development of visual cortex due to imprecision in fine eye movements is occurring very early in infancy and very early childhood. And the kinds of electrophysiological recordings we're making are very, very simple. They're non-invasive and they're relatively cheap. And so one possibility here, and again, this is something we're going to actively pursue here over the next year or two in our research, is to begin to make these recordings in much, much younger children to see if we can pick up this difference in mapping much, much earlier. And the idea is that we would ultimately get to a point where we could identify children on the autism spectrum at two months of age, six months of age, considerably earlier than we're capable of doing today. Could you tell us in more detail how you intend to pursue this research? One aspect of the study that we did conduct is that the children who participated were actually older than the age group that we would ultimately like to be working with. Our children were between the ages of about 7 and 16 years of age. The average was about 11. And so an obvious question is in concert with the notion that we would like to be able to help with earlier diagnosis is can we detect these patterns in considerably younger children, uh, children who are a few months old and during toddlerhood. Now, there's no reason at all to expect that we couldn't because the visual evoked potential, this simple measure of visual responsivity has been made in infants and children. Indeed, we do that, many labs do that for a number of decades now. So it is relatively trivial to make these kinds of recordings with the proviso that you need to be very careful about knowing precisely where the children are looking. So obviously younger children are a little bit more inclined to squirm about, move their eyes about. So we need to use high precision eye tracking techniques to ensure that they're actually looking precisely where we need them to look. But there's certainly no reason why we can't make these recordings of much younger children. That's also the case that, of course, the thesis that we have here is that this aberrant or differential mapping of cortical space is already emerging during early infancy, that it's a function of the interaction between an imprecise eye movement system and the early development of the visual cortical maps. So we should be able to detect this in infancy. And so that's an obvious area to go. A second aspect of the children that served in the study is that they were all what are described as high-functioning autistic children. So although they all met various strict diagnostic criteria for an autism spectrum disorder, these were children who had normal or within normal limits intelligent quotients, IQs. In fact, certainly a number of them were of superior intelligence. And so one would obviously wish to do this in children who have a more severe form of autism. So we need to move into children with more severe autism, and we need to move into children considerably younger to be able to make some impact on early diagnosis with these kinds of biomarkers, these kinds of measures. Like I say, it's easy to do this kind of recording. EEG is very inexpensive technology. It's very easy to deploy in children. Another obvious thing to do would be to change techniques. And instead of just using electrophysiology with the electrodes at the scalp surface, we would like to use functional imaging where very precise maps of early visual cortex can be made. This would allow us to understand the relative changes in the maps. Now, that's certainly an area that one would want to do, but it can be very difficult in young children who are not inclined to stay as still in the functional imaging machine. They squirm about. That's an aspect of working with children that we have to deal with. Uh, this is easy to deal with with EEG, but not so much with functional imaging. So there are